Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the family gathers around the casket, muttering prayers under their breath, imploring the Lord to keep those rain clouds away. There's the new widow. She's dressed in all black. Her mascara is flowing down her cheeks, and she is clutching at the chest of her dearly departed husband's brother. Like anyone else, the family isn't sure what to do with their grief. Some of them are forcefully pushing their hands into their pockets. Others are desperately trying to hold back tears, and still yet... Others stand stoically, as if nothing happened, but none of them, not the mother, not the father, not the cousins or the nieces or the nephews, none of them bat an eye when the widow drives off in the limo, nestled a little too closely with her brother-in-law. Two years later, the same family, though a little grayer than last time, gather in the same cemetery only a few paces from where they were the last time, and it all feels too familiar So much so that a few of the guests note how the pastor inexplicably uses the same homily as he did the last time around. The widow is now widowed twice, with two dead brothers buried by the old oak tree. This time, the family wonders which brother is now going to step up to the plate. And sure enough, before the occasion ends, she is driving off in another limo with another brother. A decade passes, and the woman has run out of tears for all her dead husbands. She went from one brother to another, all seven, and not one of them gave her the baby she so desperately craved. So the waning and the remaining family members try their best to show signs of grief and sadness, but the scene has become so familiar they were all kind of looking forward to it. These funerals had replaced the kind of joy of catching up that they used to have at Thanksgiving. The priest is now feeble and old. He's taken on an apprentice in these last few years of his life, hoping that this one would replace him. So the two priests in their black robes, they shake hands with the family, and then they make their way up the hill to the old country church. The old priest struggles with his old knees, sighs, and notes that the next funeral will probably be for the woman. She'll probably die of a broken heart. To which the younger priest wonders aloud, Father! To which husband will she be married in heaven? To which husband will she be married in heaven? I've heard this story more times than I can count. This is a powerful moment in Luke's gospel with the Sadducees. They try to beat Jesus at his own game by telling him their own version of a parable. They're just another drop in the ocean of people who can't stand the audaciousness of Jesus. His claims about the kingdom of God, the totality of grace, the resurrection of the dead. And for as many times as I've heard this story, for as many times as I've told this story in worship or counseling or preaching, there is a detail that has bothered me forever and ever. I mean, I get what the Sadducees are trying to do. They want to trap Jesus in a no-win situation. And okay, the woman seems like she's got some pretty bad luck, but no one wants to seem to point out the obvious. Are we sure that she's not a murderer? (laughs) I mean, friends, seven men marry her and all seven die. Those are really bad odds. You would think after number five, they'd say, hey, we got to get rid of this lady. I don't, I mean, this is crazy. And no one ever points this out. 
It's because it's a story. It's a parable. It's larger than life. It's supposed to point at something else. I mean, it could have just as well have been, hey, Jesus, there was a guy who married a girl and the guy died and his brother then married the girl. So when she dies, who's her husband going to be in heaven? But that's not juicy enough for us. That feels a little too close to normal life. So we have to expand it and think about seven different brothers. Questions are important things. And sadly, we often only think about the answer to question and rather than what's the question really saying. Because to ask a question is to reveal. It's to disclose something about the person asking a question. And there is no such thing as a question that is morally or intellectually or even politically neutral. Imagine a spouse returns home from work a little later than usual and their partner says, Did you get the groceries? Now that's a question. But there's a question behind that question. Did you get the groceries? There's also, why are you late? Or you've forgotten the groceries before, so maybe you forgot them again this time. That question contains multitudes. Or a kid comes home from school, says to his mom, Mom, why are Johnny's parents getting divorced? That's a question. But behind that question is also, are my parents going to get divorced? If I get married one day, am I going to get divorced? Questions. Think about sports. Every time a sports reporter asks him, how much do you think your practice helped you this week in the game? That's a question, but behind that is either they weren't practicing enough or maybe they practiced too much. I mean, every question has layers to it. It's like an onion. All these layers in the question. They have agendas. And before they're even answered, questions imply something about what is important and what is good and what is true. Jesus is asked a question. To whom will the woman be married to in the resurrection? The, implica- the implication, the question behind the question is that these people don't believe there's a resurrection. And they want to trap Jesus and show him how wrong he is. And he's got two choices for an answer. He can pick one of the seven brothers. You can say, oh, she's married to the first man she married, or she's married to the last man she married. Or he could pick number three or five or two. I mean, he could pick anybody. But that's not a really good answer. Because no matter who Jesus picks, it leaves seven brothers without a wife. So there's option two. Jesus could admit that the Sadducees have a good point. They might be onto something here with the assumption in their question. The woman can't be the wife of any of the husbands in the resurrection, so therefore there must not be one. But notice Jesus doesn't go with either of those options. Instead, he breaks through with an answer previously unthought of. He simply asserts the resurrection is a whole new ballgame. The rules we have right now, they no longer apply. He doesn't even stop there. He keeps going. He says the Torah proves the resurrection. Remember that time where Moses was talking to the burning bush and God said, I'm the God of your forefathers of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and Moses. None of them lived at the same time. So if they're all under the same God, they have to be together at some point, which means there's going to be a resurrection where they're all back together again. And for Jesus, this story, this moment, it's all about building up his passion. It's all about pointing to his death, his resurrection. He's trying not to paint a picture about what heaven's going to look like for spouses. He's just trying to show that the resurrection changes everything. He's trying to point to a radical and a powerful truth. That the people we marry and bury in this life, they don't belong to us in the resurrection. And that's good news. 
I know for some of us it doesn't sound like good news. For some of us, we shudder to think of a time when we will lose the people we've desperately held on to in this life. We don't want to imagine a time where the person wearing the ring is no longer bound by the promise of that ring. But that's exactly the kind of assumption that Jesus is trying to destroy. When's the last time you went to a wedding? When we do the vows, when I, as the pastor, do the vows, I don't say, till forever and ever and always and forever and infinity. We say, till death we do part. There's a reason we say that. The Sadducees and their question, they are holding desperately tight to an understanding of relationships that they have in the world. During this time of Jesus' life, women were not seen as independent people. Women were seen as property, something to be bartered and traded as such. Their question about marriage in heaven, it might as well have been, there was a man who owned a cow, and he died and gave the cow to his brother, and he died and gave the cow to his brother. So in the resurrection, who does the cow belong to? During the time of Jesus' life, women were seen as nothing more than something like a cow or another piece of property. Jesus says, in this life, people are given and married. But I tell you, in the age to come, this woman will be equal even with the angels. She will be a beloved daughter of God. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Friends, think about that. Think about what it would have meant for that woman who had been married seven times to hear that word from Jesus. Think about how this means to women today. We don't treat women like they're equal to men today at all. 77 cents to a dollar. It's crazy. We don't treat women as being equal to men at all in any sense of the imagination. So imagine how any woman might hear this word from Jesus. You are not defined by the person you marry. You are not defined by your husband. You are only defined by God. That is a powerful word. I know a whole lot of people who need to hear that word. Because there's a reason that this, Jesus refers to this law of the Old Testament. He says, hey, you know, I... I heard about this thing that Moses said a man has to marry a woman and then if the man dies, the brother has to do it. It's because women would be alone and left to die if, unless somebody married them. They could not have property. They could not have value. They could not have worth. And if they didn't have a husband, they were left in the dust. So Moses comes up with this rule from God. Make sure that women are always married so they're protected and taken care of. And Jesus says, that's not the thing anymore. I'm doing something new. It's not about who you're married to. It's about how you all belong to God. How you all belong to me. You're not going to be defined by the people you're in a relationship with. You're defined by your relationship with the body of Christ. Jesus changes everything. I can't tell you how many times I've been at a wedding or I've been in counseling and someone has said, Oh, my better half or oh, my lesser half. It drives me crazy. Because no one is half of a person when they get married. No one becomes half of a person when they get married, even though we act like it. It's crazy. No one becomes less of a person when they get married. We are unique, every one of us. We are beautiful, every one of us. We are who we are because God made us this way. We're made to be in community. Don't get me wrong. But that doesn't mean we lose part of who we are by being connected with other people. If anything, the points of connection in our life, whether they're our friends or our family or our spouses or the church, they're all there to give us the freedom to flourish as God made us. The Sadducees, they have an assumption they are bringing to the table. Part of their assumption is the resurrection isn't real. But part of their assumption is that women are second class. 
That's part of what they're bringing to Jesus. And he says, excuse me. I'm bringing a new world about. The new world is colliding with the old. You're stuck in the old world. This world you're obsessed with. In this world, there's death. In the world I'm bringing, there's going to be life and life abundant. In this world, right now, people are owned. People are belittled. People are made to feel less than whole. But in my world, in the world to come, all people are children of the living God. Jesus sees more than we can. He knows. The cross is waiting for him. He knows that the tomb won't hold him. He knows that we are all far too content with the status quo and a version of the world where some people have less value than others. So he says, hey, wake up. Listen to my voice. Come hang out and eat at my table. Take some bread, drink some wine. This is where it all starts to end and something new begins. God is God of the living. It doesn't matter whether you're married or you're buried. To God, you are alive. And that's the only thing that matters. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. story I was telling you about before, being on the phone with a woman who had lost her husband and the daughter said, I'm so grateful that my mommy and dad are finally going to be back together in heaven. It was one of those very rare moments in my life where someone asks me a question and all I had to say was Luke chapter 20, where I could point to something precisely in scripture and say, here's the answer to your question. One of the things about Willie Mack's death is that he doesn't belong to anybody. He doesn't belong to you. He doesn't belong to his first wife. He doesn't belong to me. He belongs to God. And by belonging to God, he actually belongs to all of us. That's one of the radical things about the church. As a foretaste of living by Christ in the world today, we have made vows in baptism to be present for and with each other, regardless of whether we have a ring on our finger or not. If you've ever been to a wedding I've done, there are two vows that happen. There's a vow between the spouses and then I step out and the congregation makes a vow to uphold those people in marriage. We are all connected in ways we can't even imagine. It's one of the things I love about the passing of the peace of Christ. For a moment, when we're getting ready for the table, all these divisions, all these labels we have from the world, they disappear. Because when you share signs of Christ's peace, you are sharing peace with another part of Christ's body. No one in this room belongs to anybody else. We all belong to God. Would you please bow your heads for a moment and join me in prayer? Lord, you have invited us here to see that the labels we put on ourselves, the labels the world has put on us, they don't have meaning here in this place. Because we belong to you, and you belong to us. So help us to see, taste, touch, and Lord, a little bit of this heaven on earth. A moment, a breakthrough where we can see that no one is less than anybody else. We all have value, and we all have.